Uh, my name is Ben Phillips. I'm the director of mobilization for Dare to Share Ministries out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, we're a ministry that's focused on energizing the church to mobilize their youth, to gospelize their world. And we're working to see every teen everywhere hear the gospel from a friend. Give you perspective, there's over 1 billion teens on the planet right now. In a single file line that's wrapped around the world seven and a half times. There's a huge target right now and a big need for that. And so uh, the other thing is I was on staff here at Mitchell Berean for uh, just about five years uh, doing youth and young adults ministry here. And I love that I still get to call this my home church and my family and I get to attend here and be part here. And so I have the privilege today of getting to walk through scripture with you. I wanted to start though by kind of sharing a little story of uh, stuff that happened in my family several years ago. Um, When I was just about into middle school. I was growing up in Colorado Springs. I'm one of five kids. And, and uh, we, I remember one night specifically, we sat down around our big dinner table, all seven of us. And my dad looked at all of us and he said, guys, we are, uh, we're moving. And we're going, okay. We'd moved before from this house to this house, but always kind of in this same general city area. And he says, we're moving to Haxton, Colorado. And I'm going to become the pastor of Haxton Berean Bible Church. 11-year-old me didn't really know what that meant. I was homeschooled, so that may have played into that a little bit. Now, I love homeschoolers, by the way. I'm all about it. But here's the thing. Uh, My siblings, I remember watching them go through this. My older siblings that were seeing what this meant for them. I think of my sister Stacy, halfway through middle school, doing well, thriving. She had friends. She had a community that she had built. That was gone. I think of my brother Mark who had just been accepted into one of the premier private high schools that is only for the top tier students across the state of Colorado. And if we move, that opportunity's gone. I think of my sister Becca who was going into her senior year of high school, had been part of teams, had been in clubs, had created a huge community and had a lot of plans and was about to spend her senior year with people she didn't know. I think of my mom and the community of friends that she had. And uh, the connections that were there and the friendships and the church that we were part of and and how we were doing well and how that was all going to be gone. I think about this and and through it, I I remember different seasons as we first moved to Haxton. Now, if you don't know, the area I was from in Colorado Springs, we had 500,000 people in that area. Haxton has 986 And that didn't include all seven of us. They were very excited. (laughs) But I remember getting there and going, this is different. I remember the first few months we got there and the house that we were going to live in wasn't quite ready yet. And so we stayed in the basement of another family's home, all seven of us together. We loved each other until the end of that. Um, No. (laughs) But we walked through it. I remember my parents, because we were going to live in a parsonage, knew they wanted to keep the house that had been in their family for decades. It's the house my dad grew up in. So they still owned it in Colorado Springs and they were renting it out to keep it in the family. And they got a call from the landlord that was managing the property for us. Hey, the tenants left sometime in the last three weeks and left their three dogs in here and destroyed the house. Total loss, all the equity gone. I remember going through these things and watching my family struggle And I remember that I realized something about myself through that time, that I'm a really weird person. I know that seems off, but I learned something about myself. I'll give you some examples. I love super spicy food, even though it hurts me deeply, deeply. 
I like shopping in a busy Walmart. I know some of you are a little shaken, but you're not ready for this next one. I don't like cheese. I just lost the trust of half the room. (laughs) See, here's what I learned, though, through this time with my family going through this, is I like change. I enjoy it. I actually find it exhilarating and refreshing and exciting. I do. Now, my wife, Janae, on the other hand, really does not. (laughs) She grew up here in western Nebraska. This is the place in the world that people come from anywhere else to move so that they don't have to experience change. And my wife is no exception. After 13 years of marriage, I've learned that change isn't always as fun or exciting as I felt it was. In fact, through watching my wife, I can see that while change can be good, it also hurts. It's also confusing. Change challenges us. It challenges us to have to stand on something. And for those of you who are believers, it challenges us to have to stand on our faith. And I don't know about you, but in my life, that foundation tends to be shaky at best most days. So the question is, what do we do with change? How do we handle that? How do we face that? And the Bible is full of wisdom to answer this question. But one of my favorite passages that gives us a reminder of how to handle change is found in John chapter 1. Verses, we're going to start in verse 43 and go through this story here, but I want to give you the background of what's happening. This is Jesus starting his earthly ministry and going around, and he's calling disciples to follow him. He's already called this guy named Andrew, who ran and got his brother Simon. Simon comes, and Jesus says, you're Simon. That's great, but I'm going to call you Peter. I've never understood that, but I like it. But I love this moment because Jesus is starting to call people to follow him, and that's where we're going to jump into the narrative here, starting in verse 43 of John chapter 1 says, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. I'm going to pause for a second right here. Last week, we talked about discipleship. This is a church that wants to raise up disciples who make disciples. But I want to make clear what that actually looks like. And Jesus just did in two simple words in English, one word in Greek. He said, follow me. The Greek word is this, akalutheo. It's one of my favorite words to say because it's fun. But it also has incredible meaning. It meant this, instead of just follow me as in we're going this direction, come along. It means these three things, align yourself with me, accompany me, and assist me. The direct translation to English is place your feet where mine have been. I love this picture because what Jesus was inviting Philip into was not a, hey, we're a crowd, we're going to go hang out over here, come along with us. He was saying, Philip, I want you to align yourself with me, to see what I'm about to accompany me, to come along with me and to assist me to start joining me in the work that I'm doing. This is discipleship, is to see Jesus, to start following him in these things, to join him in his work and to invite the next to do the same. That I would be emulating Christ and the next would be able to emulate me that they would then emulate Christ. This is what we wanna see. Akalutheo, align yourself. Accompany with him and assist him. I, I felt it was important for us to pause there and see that. I don't want you to miss the call of discipleship because it's what we as a church are to be about. Continuing on in this, Philip moves forward in it and runs and finds somebody else. It says, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. 
Philip found Nathanael and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael said. Come and see, Philip said. Now you may not have noticed the change that happened in this interaction here. But there was a huge change. I'm going to paint a picture for you. You see, the Jews had a specific view of what the Messiah would look like. They had a clear picture of this, that there was going to be a victorious Messiah who was going to come and restore them, overthrow those that were leading over them and oppressing them, and bring them back to being the glorious people of God that they were called to be. They get that from passages like Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, where it says this, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now, the Jewish commentaries, it's called the Talmud that the rabbis would use to teach from on these things. It explains the prophecy in this way. A Messiah will come and this is what he will do. He will proclaim good news to the poor in Israel. He will bind up the brokenhearted Jews that have been hurt. He will free our captives and set us free from our Roman or whoever it is overlords at this time. And he is going to release our prisoners, comfort the mourners. He's going to proclaim favor over Israel, bring about God's judgment on the rest of the world and restore Israel in all its glory to the preeminent nation in the world. This is what they taught. This is the Messiah they're looking for, is the one who would come and do that. You know what I love about this passage? Jesus taught on this passage while he was in the synagogue in, in Nazareth in Luke 4. He comes into the synagogue and they have a calendar of readings that they would go through the scrolls of the prophets of the law. And on this particular day that Jesus came in and was welcomed to teach, he was handed the scroll of Isaiah and this was the reading. It's no coincidence that it was. Because Jesus used this moment for a very important thing. He read through the scripture and then he declared to them, This prophecy has been fulfilled today in front of you. And it says the people were amazed. They were astonished at his teaching. And then they started to go, wait a second. Didn't this guy grow up here? We know this guy. We know his family. His sisters are right over there. Who is he claiming to be? Now, why are they all of a sudden questioning him? They know of the miracles he's done. He'd actually done some miracles very nearby to them. And they've heard the stories. There's a reason why he was welcomed as a rabbi to teach. is because he had some renown to him. And he was the hometown boy. Something interesting that goes on in this. When you go back and see how Jesus taught through this passage, he stopped reading the verses at one point. That's very important to notice. He stopped reading before he got to the part about the day of the Lord's vengeance. He stopped He said that they will declare the Lord's favor and stopped. This is interesting to the Jews because they like that other part. It's the voicing of the victorious Messiah who would come. And they're all wondering, is this him? Is he about to lead us? Are we about to run into battle ready to go? Because he is going to lead us to victory. This is what they're looking for. But he stopped there. Why? 
Well, because Jesus was showing them something very important about this prophecy, that it referred to two specific fulfillment times. Fulfillment number one is that a Messiah would come and he would bring good news to the poor and he would set captives free and he would comfort the mourners and he would help those that are, that are spiritually naked find truth. And then prophecy number two within this is that there would be another day that he would return and bring the Lord's judgment. He was showing them that by separating these two. They didn't like that and then Jesus took it a step further. He brings up two stories to them that they really didn't like. Jews did not like this because it was the times in their history that the Jewish nation was having some of its toughest struggles and famines and God took the prophets and sent them to people outside of his chosen people to help them. It's embarrassing for them that they would not be worthy as the Jews, as God's people of his provision through the prophets that he would send them somewhere else. There's no way those people are unworthy. And Jesus brings those up to show this. I'm not just here to proclaim good news to the poor of Israel, but to those that are poor everywhere. I'm not just coming to set captives free from overlords. I'm setting captives free everywhere from sin and death. I am the Messiah who's here for that purpose. He was speaking of a Messiah that was for all, not just for Israel. And their response, they formed a mob. They chased him out to the edge of town where there was a cliff that they would throw false teachers off of to their death. They didn't want to accept it because it was such a change from what they believed it should be. You see, Jesus didn't come in that time as their victorious ruler and king to sit on the throne and bring them into this glorious state of Israel. Instead, he was fulfilling the messianic prophecies that they didn't like from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. See, these are messianic prophecies about a suffering Messiah. One who would come in and be despised and rejected. One who would even die. That didn't make sense to them. That's not what they were looking for. Why would their victorious king suffer? In their eyes, he wouldn't. Instead, he would make their enemies suffer. That's what they wanted. That's what they were looking for. Jews, even up to this day, reject these as messianic prophecies. Instead, they declare that these, these suffering Messiah prophecies are not about a Messiah at all. They're about Israel at certain times or about different people that some are even undefined. We don't know who they really are. Because to accept these means to accept something different than what they thought it should be. So why is Nathaniel bitter towards Nazareth and struggling with this? Well, because of this kind of thinking. And Nazareth is an interesting place. What makes him so hesitant to believe Philip is that it's an unexpected place for a Messiah to come from. This is the first thing I want you to understand is that change brings the unexpected. It brings unexpected feelings, unexpected timing, unexpected places that it comes from and sources. See, Nathaniel struggled with Nazareth because no God-fearing Jew would ever want to follow someone from Nazareth. There's no way. Nazareth was in Galilee. Galileans were not well-liked. They were a lower class of Jew. 
They aren't from the nice part of the country. In fact, their history is this. 700 years before this happens, the whole northern half of Israel, which is where Galilee is, is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. They are dispersed around, and then their land is given to other Gentiles to come in, non-Jews. So when they returned as Jews to this area, there was a lot of intermingling that went on between Jews and Gentiles, meaning that everyone from Galilee now had the question of whether or not they were a pure blood, fully honorable Jew anymore. They're lower class because we don't even know if they're really us. People from Galilee were consistently questioned as not being pure blood Jews and whether or not they deserve to even be considered God's people. They had accents that gave them away. And people noticed it and they called it out. You see this in, in the accounts of Peter on the night that he, he denies Jesus. The last one that calls him out says, you are with Jesus. You're a Galilean. Your accent gives you away. We can hear who you are. And he continues to deny. But understand this, the Galileans were known to be kind of the rabble rousers. They were the, the Jews that would rise up at any given moment. They were a quick mob to run. See that happen in Nazareth against Jesus. But this is, is the view of it. And understand this, Nazareth was like the worst part of Galilee. This isn't like a prominent, somewhat partially respectable city. This is, this is a town that's meaningless and has no reason to be involved in this story. It's a highly Gentile area. It's not even known outside of Israel. The gospel writers have to describe it and define it in different ways so that people outside of Israel who read would understand kind of the general area that he came from. Because nobody knows Nazareth. Just like I grew up in Haxton. Almost nobody knows where Haxton is. A lot of people do here, I know. I found that out last service. So, but... Hey, there we go. So, but Nazareth was less known than that. So there we go. We'll use that as our standard for now. How could the Messiah, who would be held in such high esteem, come from a place like that where the lowest of the low come from? There's no way. Why would he come from there? I feel like we do the same thing. I feel like we, we question things and we're so quickly skeptical, pessimistic, and offended by change that we hesitate or even rebel against it. And that's understandable. You know why that's understandable? Remember what I said? Change hurts. Change confuses. And change challenges us. It's absolutely understandable that we have that response. So here's the real question. How do we deal with the unexpected? Well, by remembering that none of it was unexpected to God. Daniel 2, 21, I love this moment where Daniel is speaking before King Nebuchadnezzar and he declares this truth about God. He says, he changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He is in control. It's his. He's in charge of it. Unexpected for us is not for him. And we must trust him. The next thing that change brings is the unknown. Brings this idea of unknown. Back to John 1. I love that Philip doesn't take time to try to explain it. He comes in and he says, we found the guy that Moses wrote about. The prophets talked about. It's the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's like, there's no way it can be that guy. And Philip doesn't go, well, let me show you why I know he is. He just says, come and see. I always like to picture Philip as just kind of running off at that moment. Nathaniel's stuck there going, what do I do with this? 
You see, Nathaniel has to, has to deal with this. Can you imagine him in this moment? He's got all these questions and zero answers. Just an invitation to run into the unknown. You know, the unknown kind of terrifies us. I know we've got this kind of movement in our culture where it's like, no, we like the adventure, going into the unknown, yet we go into it really prepared, don't we? We like the idea of that adventure, but unknown really terrifies us. We don't like it because it means I'm not in control of what happens next. It feels unsafe. We like comfort. We want to know what's going on. We want to know all the details. One of the guys that I work with is reading through a book right now as we're doing a lot of international ministry stuff. Is this book called The Culture Map. And it's looking at the different ways that we interact across different cultures around the world. And there's a chart in there that talks about the, the, every country on the world and, and how many words it takes for them to explain something. And you've got countries like Japan that are on a far end of this scale that it takes very few words because so much is just displayed in the body language and cultural context of where they're meeting and why that they don't have to say very much for the whole point to get across. They use the least amount of words to explain something in Japan. Can you guess who's on the very end or the other end of the scale? It's us. We like to know everything. We have to know everything. We will know everything or we won't do anything. This is the hard part of it for us. We don't like the unknown. By remembering the unknown to us is not unknown to him is how we deal with the unknown. Isaiah 41.10 says, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's calling us to trust him in the unknown. And we must trust him. That's the reality. That's the challenge as he's saying, no matter what it is, I have you. I've got you. Trust me as your provision. Trust me even when it doesn't make sense. The next thing that change brings is change brings risk. It really does. For Nathaniel to go meet this guy from Nazareth brings up a lot of risk, actually. Nathaniel probably thought things like this. What if this guy's some kind of cult leader? Now, you may think that that's not something they thought then, but they actually had a history of things that had been going on where you had cult leaders that were gathering groups of Jews and saying all these things, claiming to be messiahs, claiming to be stuff, and even one where this guy led a bunch of them out into the wilderness and they all died. This is a problem. And when someone runs up to you and says, we found the messiah, you're probably going to question it especially in a culture where you're seeing things like that. What if, what if this guy seems like the Messiah and we all believe him, follow him, and then it's a lie? What do we do then? How do we handle it then? What if I get there, I meet the guy, I don't believe him, and it hurts my friendship and relationship with Philip? What if this is some trick of the Romans just trying to lead us all to our deaths? We're Galileans. They don't like us. We're the ones who cause trouble. I wouldn't put this past them. They know our culture. They know what we're looking for and waiting for. Why wouldn't they come up with something like this? What if? What if? What if? The what if game is one of my wife's favorite games to play. 
and I love my wife. I play along with her, but I'm a weird optimist, remember? She'll say, what if this happens? And I go, yeah, but what if this happens? She goes, that won't happen. I go, but yours won't. She's like, it's more likely. I'm like, oh, I need that. (laughs) I need the reminder. But so does she. And here's here's the thing. When we look at risks, we like to play the what if because that is what happens with risk. Risk is going, but what if this happens? That's all that's up in the air. And again, we want every detail. There's a lot of risks Nathaniel was taking if he got up and followed his friends. So here's my question. What do we do when change is risky and brings that up? We remember that God is in control and that he is the overcomer. John 16, Jesus says this. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's looking and saying, yes, there's risk. And guess what? No matter what you choose to do or not, in this world, you will have trouble. It's going to happen. But you can have peace in trusting me that I've already overcome for you. That I've already fought the battle. That I am victorious. And that you get to stand with me in that You can trust him. And when change brings risk, we must trust him. Change brings the unexpected. Change takes us or challenges us to go into the unknown. It challenges us to stand on something. Change brings risks, but change also brings opportunity. I want you to see Nathaniel's response to all this change because it's absolutely incredible to me. All of this that's floating around, and here's what we see happen, continuing in John 1, starting in verse 47 here. So it says this, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, which means he got up and went, when he saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael said. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. That took a real sharp turn, didn't it? It's kind of confusing what just happened in that moment. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want you to see what happened. When Nathaniel accepted the unexpected, stepped into the unknown, and embraced the risk, he came face to face with the Messiah. He came face to face with exactly what he needed. He found in this change of what he thought things would be like, a truth that was far greater than he could have ever imagined. So what's all this talk about the fig tree? I saw you under the fig tree before Philip came and got you. Why does that turn him? The truth is, the only people who know that are Jesus and Nathaniel. That's the reality. There's likely understanding. Jews often had places that they would go where that would be their personal spot to, to pray and worship God, to devote time to him and themselves to him a place where they would go and confess that was private and that was theirs. You can go back and look through uh, some of the writings of David and he had places like this. You can go and look at Jesus and there are places Jesus would go to a lonely place, a place away to pray. And Nathaniel possibly was sitting under a fig tree because that was his place in the shade of this area where he could have some privacy and he could pray. 
And so what Jesus is saying, when I saw you under the fig tree, it wasn't, I walked by and I glanced and saw you there and I said, Philip, go get that guy. He was saying, I know what happened under that fig tree. And there's no deceit in you at all. Because possibly what's happening is Nathaniel sits under that fig tree and he is praying and confessing his sin and declaring his need for a Messiah under that fig tree and pleading with God and seeking God, getting it all out. And Jesus looks at him and says, I saw you under the fig tree. I've heard your prayer. There's no deceit in you because you've laid it all out. This is why Nathaniel looks and goes, you are the son of God. You are the Holy One. It's an incredible, beautiful thing to see here, this picture of the opportunity that Nathaniel found to be seen by Jesus, declared righteous by Jesus, and then invited to follow Jesus. Here's the questions that we have to answer for us. What, what risk will we face when change comes? I don't know, but God does. What unknown areas will we have to walk through? I don't know but God does. What unexpected things are we gonna face? I don't know, but God does. What opportunity faces us when change comes? An opportunity to trust God. That's the opportunity that's there. To trust that when he says things like Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We take promises like that and know that he is trustworthy. We just saying, I don't know what you're doing, but I do know what you've done. You've proven yourself, God, over and over and over. I can trust you. I can trust you. And that's the opportunity we have in the midst of it. An opportunity to stand firm on the foundation that has been laid out for us. That foundation is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is our only firm place to stand on when change comes, when things catch us off guard, when there's extra, when there's all this risk, when there's unknown, when there's unexpected. He is the only solid thing. And trusting him means standing on him. And trusting him. In change, he's our only solid ground and our only stability in shaky times. He is our only hope. And there may be some of you in here who look and say, I don't really know what that means to stand on Jesus. And I wanna make it very simple for you. God sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life here and then gave himself up to death, dying willingly to pay the price that I owed and you owed for our sins. Three days later, God the Father raised his son from the dead, declaring that payment had been accepted. It was approved on your behalf. And now anyone who takes that step of faith to trust him, putting all the weight of what it takes to save them on him and not on anything else has an eternal life that starts that moment and lasts forever can never be taken from you we go through shaky times we go through heavy times we go through hard times and there is a peace and a solid ground to stand on when we have our faith 
in Jesus Christ. If you have not done that and ever placed your faith in him, I invite you to do that today. Whether that's just as I'm closing this time in prayer, you just talking to God and and telling him that you are putting your faith in Jesus or coming and finding me out in the lobby, I would love to talk to you about this. But here's the challenge, no matter what it is. I want you to tell somebody else what decision you make with this because I want them to be able to invite you to Akalutheo as they follow Jesus. Align yourself, accompany and assist and be discipled. We wanna come alongside you in your faith and help you grow. That's what the church is for. So I would just invite you, if you've never done that, please, today, respond. Get your questions answered. Don't leave here without understanding what it takes to trust in him. I'm gonna pray as the worship team comes forward to come to the end of our service. God, I thank you for sending your son to die for us. And God, I do pray that if there's anyone in here who has not yet put their faith in you, that God, you would draw them by your spirit as only you can to yourself. And that today would be the day of salvation. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it is to stand on a solid, firm foundation in Christ no matter what comes. Knowing that there is no other solid foundation but him. God, I pray that you would help us to trust you in the unexpected, in the unknown, in the risk. God, that we would take the opportunity that you give us to honor you, to glorify you by trusting you. God, help us to represent that well. God, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We praise you, God, and look forward to how you're gonna work and grow us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.